This series is called Burnt. I think it's a good thing for the church to be talking about. God talks about it, and uh, it's a good lesson for us, because who hasn't been burnt? You know, if I were to ask for a show of hands of anybody who's ever been burnt by circumstance or in a relationship, all of our hands would go up. A better question would be, when was the last time you were burnt? (laughs) Because it happens so frequently to us. Burnt is described by Pastor Garrett last week as hurt so deep that eventually you just become numb to it. You are burnt. You're not just uh, scorched. You know, you're crispy. You know, you just don't even care anymore. And sometimes that happens, uh, whether it be on the, on the job with colleagues or, or a boss or a supervisor. Maybe it's happened to you in a friendship and you just wonder, what went wrong there? You know, why could that not continue? How did it turn so bad so quick? Or maybe you've been burnt by a financial advisor, won't even ask for a show of hands. <laughs> maybe a doctor, maybe a, a pastor, or maybe a mom, a dad, son, a daughter, brother, a sister. I think we're most susceptible to being burnt by those who are closest to us because the relationship is so tight. They have a special privilege to be close to our lives. You know, when we get burnt by somebody that we care about or somebody that's important to us, we have recourse. You know, we can turn to the Lord. can't tell you how often, you know, I'm serving the Lord's Supper up here and people are passing by and and the message wasn't, I thought, an especially emotional message. Maybe it was a, a message about celebration or about how good God is. And, and yet somebody will come by with tears just running down their cheeks. You know, and, and they're having a moment with the Lord. And, and they have recourse. Because no matter what pain they're encountering in life, whether it's a setback you know, because of a health reason or a relationship or whatever it might be, you know, they're in deep care of the Lord. And you can see that as, as they pass by. So we have recourse. In fact, the hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. You know, well, what peace we often forfeit. All because we don't take it to the Lord in prayer. I love the third verse, though, that says, do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. And so we have recourse when when somebody burns us. But what recourse do we have when when God burns us? When we suffer a disappointment in our relationship with the Lord. When he seems uncaring, unmoved. When our prayers go unanswered. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Typically, that's a deal killer. You know, we quit church. We quit Bible study. We quit prayer. We quit other Christians. Most do. But then what? I think you have two choices. You can become pretty bitter, pretty independent, you know, completely self-reliant. You can get tough. Or you can just go to despair and tremendous sadness and isolation. Neither one of those answers to disappointment from God will heal our hurting heart. Let's pray. 
Gracious Lord, we want a better way. We want some insight from you. Um, You know all things about us, Lord. You know our disappointments and you know our sadness and you know our frustrations. And and Lord, you accept us even when we are frustrated and and sad because of what appears to be a, a deal killer with you in our prayer life and our walk with you in your unresponsive concern uh, to our life. Lord, provide some direction today because we come humbly seeking your wisdom, willing to listen one more time to what you might have to say. Lord, bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Our lesson is from a disciple named Thomas who was uh, one of the 12. Uh, It's a week after Easter, a week after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Thomas wasn't buying it. The other 10 had been in an upper room when some disciples who were on the road to Emmaus on Easter afternoon came running back and said they had seen the Lord. He had joined them on a walk and then suddenly the Lord appeared in that very room with them in the upper room even though they were behind locked doors. But Thomas was not there. Thomas was suffering extreme disappointment from what he expected of the Lord and the reality that he experienced in the crucifixion of a savior. And so we're gonna take a look at his story and see what can be learned from it and apply it to our life. From John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the 12 and he was not with the disciples. Now right away that says something about Thomas, doesn't it? I mean, we, we know that Judas, who had betrayed the Lord, did not think that he could be forgiven for that. That's a sad thing if you think that you've gone so far that God can't reach out to you again. You know, Peter had also betrayed the Lord, not just once, but three times, and the Lord was willing and able and, and did restore him. It's just so unfortunate that Judas did not think that God could also forgive him, and so he had hung himself. So there were only 10 other disciples besides Thomas, but uh, Thomas was not hanging with him. He thought the deal was over. You know, it's, it's ended. It ended on the cross. Not what anyone expected. So he was not gathered with the others when Jesus appeared to them. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. Thomas says, you're delusional, in my version. <laughs> he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not buying it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And this time, Thomas, perhaps softening, was with them. Though the doors again were locked, Jesus came and suddenly stood among them. And he said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he turned to Thomas personally and said, Thomas, you wanted to a moment with me. So put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. And Thomas was converted that moment and said, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him and through him told us, because you see, you believe, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He's talking about you, he's talking about me. But yet we have to struggle with this business 
of disappointment in God, even as Thomas had to struggle with his disappointment. Now, we know a few things about Thomas, that Thomas had a couple of nicknames. He was called Didymus. Didymus simply means twin. He was a twin. Now, most believe that he was probably Matthew's twin, because in the listing of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples, it's always James and John, Peter and Andrew, and then it's Thomas and Matthew. So it looks as though they are linked, and then they will list the other disciples individually. But uh, it appears that he was Matthew's disciple. Now, we know that Matthew was a tax collector. We know that Matthew wasn't seeking the Lord out. We know that the Lord passed Matthew, and, and he just asked him in some kind of compelling way to, to leave that all behind and follow. And we know that Matthew's friends were not especially religious, not uh, highly regarded by the Jewish crowd, the religious crowd, because uh, he then invited Jesus to a party in his house. And he gathered all kinds of other known sinners, people on the outside of the church. In fact, Jesus, by going to that party, was criticized, saying, why does your master hang out with people who are not religious? And so this was probably the relationship uh, that we find Thomas in, you know, kind of a secular a skeptic about religious things. This was the nature of the man called Thomas, who was also a twin, probably the twin of Matthew. He's called Doubting Thomas. You know, we uh, meet early on Tuesday morning to study for uh, the messages with some other guys that hang out with us, and, and uh, Pastor Garrett and I are there, and, and uh, there's a fellow by the name of Bill. He's a become a friend of ours, and the only reason he's become a friend is because he has coffee at Starbucks every morning. And uh, he's always curious about everybody who walks in. He's like the mayor of that Starbucks. And he, he knows everybody by name, not, all, not only the baristas, but even the customers. And, and so he walked over uh, a couple of years ago and said, what are you doing? And we explained what we're doing. He says, mind if I sit in? Now, he's a member at St. Albans Catholic Church, and uh, so I have a lot of fun with him, you know, by being a part of that. But man, this guy knows his Bible. He's, he's very astute. And so I said to him this past week, I said, so Bill, I said, in all of your experience in the Catholic Church, how many churches do you know that are named Doubting Thomas Catholic Church? He goes, we have a few Thomas Aquinas churches, but I don't think we have any Doubting Thomas Church. How about you Lutherans? And I said, none that I know of. You know, Thomas gets no love. You know, he gets no respect. You know, no one wants to be thought of, you know, as a doubting Thomas. But I, I think that's a misnomer. I think he should be called uh, straight-talking Thomas. I think he should be called bold Thomas. Because he only is willing to say what others are thinking. You know, three other times, or at least two other times in the Gospel of John, Thomas is mentioned. And always he's kind of outspoken. Always he's saying what the others are thinking, but they just don't have the courage to say. I think we know so much more because Thomas was chosen by God and he was there. And he, he asked the Lord questions that no one else would ask. And so Jesus answered them. For instance, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, you know, there was this discussion about Lazarus is sick. We should go back and, and uh, that I could be with him. And uh, the disciple says, no, no, Lord. You know, the last time you were there, they almost arrested you. We barely got away, you know, by the skin of our teeth. If you go back there, you're going to be killed. And he says, no, we must go back there. He says, your brother Lazarus has died. He says, well, if he's died, there's nothing we can do. He says, no, you, you have to see the hand of God. And then Thomas pipes up and says, well, let's go die with him. 
You know, <laughs> you know that's what everybody was thinking. And uh, it must have been interesting for Jesus to have that guy in the group. And then in the upper room, when Jesus was getting ready just before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane that very night on Monday, Thursday, uh, Jesus said, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave you. And if I leave you, I will come again and receive you so that you may be where I am. And you know the way where I'm going. Silence in the room, except for Thomas. He says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know where you're going? And Jesus said, uh, I am the way, Thomas, the truth and the life. I mean, what an incredible passage for us. And we know that others were thinking the same thing because after Jesus gave that answer, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip then had courage because of Thomas and he said, just show us your Father and then we'd believe. And he says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and still you don't know me? And then today we find also this attitude of Thomas saying, you know, I just find it really hard to believe because I saw him die and I'm not willing to accept it on the basis of your experience. I have to have my own experience. I kind of think of Thomas as a little libertarian Thomas. He's not Democrat, he's not Republican. He's, he's the Rand Paul of the disciples, you know. And, and I kind of like that. I kind of like that free thinking attitude. And so he is, uh, he's unique, he's different but he's a realist. He wants to deal with things that he can touch, things that he can see. And so he has given up on the Lord. You know, maybe you've given up on the Lord too. There are three, th- three reasons I believe that, that people break up with God. Uh, the first is they can't tolerate organized religion. I am organized religion and I can't tolerate it very well. So, you know, I hear you. You know, it's messy. It's led by sinful people who do sinful things. And, and um, no doubt you've been hurt occasionally uh, by your expectations of organized religion or the organized church, and, and it's disappointed you. You know, I don't know how long you've been worshiping in this place, but we don't talk a lot about our denomination. We don't talk a lot about our greater church affiliation. And the reason we don't is because my mama said, if you can't say anything good about somebody, just don't say anything at all. And and yet, we need to organize. I'm not against organization. Obviously, I lead a church. Or at least, I help Pastor Garrett lead a church these days. And, and, And that's good because we can do things together. And we're doing things together like Anne Marie just shared with us that we could never do alone. Yeah, you, you could be a solo artist in faith and, and you could make a difference, but together we can do so much more. We can reach so many more people. And it's according to the word of God that we get together. In Hebrews it says, do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but come together for the spiritual uplifting and encouragement of each other and all the more as you see that day drawing near. You know, you can't be everything that everybody else needs, but together we can be what the world needs. And together, encouraged by the word of the Lord and by the Holy Spirit living in our life, we can touch so many more people. And so it's important that we get together. I kind of subscribe to the Noah's Ark view of the church, the organized church. You know, the Noah's Ark view is that you couldn't stand the stench on the inside if it weren't for the storm on the outside. And that's kind of true. You know, it's, it's, it's not always pleasant in here, you know, in the organized church. But yet, man, the world needs us and we need the church and, 
And uh, it's a tough place out there. We need each other as we walk through this life. So the first reason people break up with God, I think, is they can't tolerate organized church. Second reason is Christian hypocrisy. You know, this expectation that, that we are going to be like Jesus to everybody, and of course we're not Jesus. You know, I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh. In my flesh dwells no good thing. And the Apostle Paul said, and man, that's true of me. You know, I'm, I'm not everything everybody needs, not everything even my family needs. You know, I fall short of my friends, uh, and that's just the nature. And, and if people think that you are Jesus and you fail them, then they say, well, Christians are hypocrites. There's a, a fellow by the name of um, John Pavelitz who writes a blog called Things That Need to Be Said. And of Christians, he wrote recently, if we are honest, in the course of a given day out there, most of us are usually far more interested in winning arguments, proving points, garnering retreat, retweets, and throwing shade at others than we are in reflecting on the compassion and humility and dignity that Jesus would show to people who cross our path. You know, and, and instead of being all about the truth and let me straighten you out and let me tell you what we believe as Christians, if, if we just led with kindness, if we just led with compassion, as Jesus often did, that then led to deeper discussions, so much more could be achieved. So we break up with God because of Christians and because of the church and, and I think because of unanswered prayer, that might even be the biggest one. I think that was Thomas's reason. And he broke up because of unanswered prayer. You know, uh, Jesus didn't become the great world leader that he had signed up with. You know, he, he was going to be, you know, the next member of the ruling council over Jerusalem. And who knows, maybe even the world, because he had seen Jesus do miraculous things. So when it all ended on the cross, man, he thought, this isn't what I expected. This isn't what I signed up for. If you um, struggle with unanswered prayer, you are in good company. Even the the greatest people in the Bible uh, were confused by God and struggled because of unanswered prayer. If you go to the Old Testament, probably the premier example is, is Job, who was furious with God. Like, what have I done to deserve all this stuff that has happened to me, all the all the disease that I've had to encounter, the loss of my own family, you know, and, and the silence that I'm getting from you, God. Maybe you felt like Job. You know, like, I've had it. Now, he didn't deny the faith, but he was close to it. He got angry with God. Job said, I cry out to you, but you don't answer. I stand up, but you merely just look at me. You have turned on me ruthlessly, With the might of your hand, you have attacked me. You snatch me up and drive me like the wind drives a bush. You toss me about like a storm. I know that eventually you will bring me to death, to the place appointed for all the living. How can you be this way? Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries out for help. Have I not wept wept for those who are in trouble? Has my soul not grieved for the poor? And yet when I hope for your good, evil comes. 
And when I look for light, I only find darkness. That's Job. That's a man who is close to God. And so if you feel that God has become distant, you're in good company. Or how about Elijah? Elijah in the Old Testament wanted to quit God and die. Now, you may not know who Elijah is, but you've probably heard of the fiery chariot. When the end of his life came, God didn't cause him to die. He sent a fiery chariot and brought him up to heaven in a miraculous way. Maybe you've heard that story. It was also Elijah who during a very wicked time in Israel, when Jezebel, you've heard the name, was queen and Ahab was her husband, you know, uh, kind of in a hugely submissive role to his wife, an evil queen, uh, you know, killed all the prophets. And God called Elijah to stand up to them. And so he uh, appeared to them in public and he said, I challenge you to a duel on Mount Carmel. Bring all of your false prophets of Baal and I will come and represent the Lord. And then they built two altars and you know the story. He said, whoever's God lights the altar on fire without us touching it is the true God. And the prophets of Baal prayed out to God, their God, for hours and hours. And Elijah stood in the corner mocking them saying maybe he should wake him up, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's in the bathroom, said all kinds of derogatory things to them, still knowing that his turn was coming. And then when it came his turn, he covered it with water and he prayed to God and God struck his altar with lightning and it was consumed, not even just the offering, but even the rocks and even the water, proving that God was God. And what difference did it make? None. Everybody was still so afraid of Ahab and Jezebel, they wouldn't line up with Elijah. So what did Elijah, this great man of faith, do? He ran out into the desert and said, kill me now, Lord. It doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. He said, I have been zealous for you. And yet Israel has rejected your covenants, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword, and I'm the only one left, and they seek to kill me too. He had had it with his business of being God's person. Maybe that's you. You just don't see what difference your life makes. You've been burnt by God. And it's not just Bible people. Mother Teresa, of course, is one of the latest and greatest saints of the Catholic Church. She was, she was fast-tracked <laughs> into sainthood, but, but almost upset because some letters were discovered that she wrote to her father confessor, even to the very point of being granted the Nobel Peace Prize for her outstanding work, she had doubts. She felt burned by God. In one of those letters coming out in a book called Come By My Light, she said, how can you assume your lover's ardor you know, your lover's love, how can you assume that, speaking about God? How can, I, how can I assume that he loves me when he no longer grants me his voice, his touch, or his presence? The more I want him, the less I appear wanted. Such deep longing for God and yet repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. The saving of souls no longer holds attraction. Please pray for me that I keep smiling at him in spite of everything. Please pray especially for me that I may not spoil his work and that the Lord may show himself to me for there is terrible darkness within me and everything seems dead. You know, even Mother Teresa 
felt burned by God. Let me give you one more example. An American by the name of Ruth Graham, married over 60 years to Billy. Uh, she died in, in uh, 2007, married 64 years to her husband who is still living. She struggled because uh, God didn't seem to be blessing her family. Even though Billy's ministry was being blessed and he's world-renowned, yet as a mother, her heart was broken for her children. Franklin, who now speaks for the Billy Graham Association, was a rebel. You know, he gave up the church and so did some of her other children. She wrote a book called Prodigals. Man, I recommend it if you have children who have, who have left the church or left faith. Uh, and in it, she has gathered things that sustained her during those times when her children seemed unfaithful. And she also wrote some of her own poetry there. And it's a mother's heart. Uh, In response to uh, a passage, Lamentations 3, that says, it is good that we should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. She said, we mothers must take care of what is possible and trust God to do the impossible. She couldn't go out and bring her children back to the fold. And she wrote a poem about that saying, I bring those whom I love to you, committing each to your loving care, Then carry them away again, nor leave them there. Forgetting you, who live to die and rise again, care more than I. So back I come with my heart's heavy load, confessing my lack of faith. Billy Graham's wife, confessing my lack of faith in you alone. Addressing all I cannot understand to you who do. You know, God was confusing to her. I'll bet you there are parents in this room who feel, who feel that way. So, uh, so what can you do about it? When God disappoints you, there are two things. Two things different than just getting angry or just getting sad. Two different things that you can do. First, get a grip on reality. The thing I've noticed about ex-girlfriends, ex-boyfriends, ex-lovers, ex-wives, ex-husbands is that we can no longer be objective about them. (laughs) You know, when they hurt us, they never did anything right. And that's how people feel about God when they are ex-lovers of God. He's at fault for everything. When in fact, if we get a grip on reality and we know what the scripture says, God is not the cause of evil. There is a devil in the world. He rebelled against God in heaven. He was an angel. He was a highly placed angel. One of the highest ranking angels in all of scripture. Revelations 12 talks about it. And there was a war that broke out in heaven before Adam and Eve fell into sin. So it was Before the sin on earth, there was a sin in heaven, a rebellion by the angels. And he was defeated by the blood of Jesus, even though Jesus had not yet been promised, had not yet been born, had not yet died. Just shows that we deal in in time and sequence and God doesn't. And he was thrown down to earth. And with him, a loud voice was heard saying, woe to you earth and sea for the devil has come down. And he is very angry and has a short time left. And he will wreak havoc upon you. 
The devil is out there wreaking havoc on our relationships, wreaking havoc on our lives. Let's give the devil his due. In fact, in Ephesians chapter two, Paul calls him the prince of this world. The Lord has allowed him a season to be unleashed so that we can rely not on our own strength, but on God who must stand against him. Clothe yourself, it says in Ephesians 6, with the whole armor of God that you may withstand those kinds of attacks, those kind of spiritual warfare that we have to endure. So get a grip, you know, deal with reality, be objective. God doesn't cause all your pain. There are other people who also bring pain into your life. We ignore the reality of human nature. Paul said, I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh or in your flesh either. You know, I, I love um, the Psalms and one of the Psalms 103 uh, says that God is not too harsh with us because he knows our nature. He knows that we are but dust. You know, he, he knows that we are failed people and we fail each other. And so we have to own that. God is a, the one who always fails us. It, it can be our friends. It can be our husbands, our wives, our, our children or our parents. You can be um, people at work, sinful people who are, who are not acting as God would have them act. You know, let's lay some of the blame there. And then, and then finally, uh, let's get objective and take some personal responsibility for the trouble that we make for ourselves and that we bring into our life. We can't blame all of our struggle. So the, the, the first thing that we have to do when we deal with God's disappointment is not lay all of the blame on God. You know, there's plenty of blame to go around and we're responsible for some, so are others and there is such a thing as Satan in the world. And then secondly and more importantly, understand the nature of God. He is God and you are not, amen? He probably knows a little bit more than you. You know, there's a passage in that first section that I was gonna quote saying that uh, God doesn't cause all things. There's a, can we go back to that, guys? Here it is. God causes all things to work together for good. We, li- we like to say that God just causes all things and so it's all his fault. But that's not what the passage says. It says God causes all the heartache and all the bitterness and all the struggle, even the disease, to work together for the good of those who love him. You, you think about how people have come out of difficulty and have become such witnesses to the strength that you couldn't believe they could have because it comes from God. And, and some will even say, you know, that day that I was in that accident or, or that day that I was heartbroken became the turning point of my life and I wouldn't give it up even though it was painful for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. I would say ultimately though, the answer to when God disappoints us is to recognize that he is God and we are not. Next point, guys. If you have to understand the God you worship, if he has to make sense to you, then you need a bigger God because that means he's lesser than you. That means that you know more than him. You know, he's your servant, you're not his servant. Can you just accept the fact that despite the mess we make, despite the mess others make, despite what Satan is doing in our life, God has got us. He's got our back. He's got us covered. As for me, I don't want a God that I'm capable of understanding. I want a God who confuses me because he's doing things I can't imagine. You think about a child with a parent. A child expects their parents to know them. Uh, He expects them to have their back. A child expects a parent to take care of them. 
they assume that their mom and dad know more and, and will never fail them. And so they're at perfect peace. Wow, if we could just apply that same attitude towards God. And just acknowledge, as Thomas had to acknowledge, that his thinking was flawed. And God had a bigger plan that he didn't understand. When Peter challenged Jesus, when he said, I must go down to Jerusalem and suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and on the third day be raised again. Peter said, this will never happen to you. Peter had a better plan than God. And Jesus' answer to Peter was, you have your mind on what you think is best, not on what God knows is best. And how often is that the case for us? We think we know what God should do, as though we are God, and he is not. But here's what the scripture says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How beyond question are his judgments and his paths beyond my comprehension. Who can know the mind of the Lord? You think you could be his counselor? How arrogant of us. And so Thomas, you know, he wasn't shunned by Jesus. Jesus understood his need and and provided for him despite his doubt, despite his questioning, despite his need for evidence. And he will do that for you as well and do that for me. Despite our struggle, God will still extend a hand all day long to those who question. At Christmas, we like to say that Jesus is the reason for the season. And wow, what an awesome holiday. The whole world is touched by the story of Jesus' birth that God would so love the world that he came down in the form of a child, came down, again, confusingly, (laughs) as a baby, a vulnerable, needy child to save the world. We wouldn't have figured it that way. We would have come in strength and power. But he came in weakness and accomplished our salvation. He is the reason that we celebrate Christmas. And if that is true about Christmas, then I think we ought to say about Easter, Jesus is the proof of the truth. We can trust him in our lives because he proved trustworthy in all the promises that he made about his purpose and his mission. He said to Thomas, come over here, son. Touch my hands. Touch my side. Don't doubt me. Believe. Don't doubt your Lord. Despite your frustration, just believe. He is greater than you. We pray. Lord, accept us like you accepted Thomas. Despite our disappointment, despite our questioning, receive us, affirm us, renew us, redirect us, strengthen us for the task ahead. Lord, we apologize for the times that we have questioned you, for the times that we broke up with you yet you never broke up with us. So Lord, receive us back and encourage us to greater trust, even in our confusion. We pray it because of Jesus, for he is the proof of the truth. Amen.